This episode contains discussion of food considered clean, eating disorders like orthorexia, and general restrictive diets. Many eating disorders can be triggered or worsened by listening to or talking about these topics, so please don't listen if you think this episode won't do you any good. Let me get my biases out of the way right at the start here. In a way, I'm the last person who should be talking about clean eating. I'd drink red wine every single day if I didn't think it would give me a veiny face, and my apple pay history is mainly McDonald's. I never weigh myself, and I went to a gym once for about two months, and my best friend still finds the mere mention of it amusing. The concept of eating clean is very alien to me, and I don't think much of dieting in general ever since I read some of those slimming teas that Instagram people promote can make the contraceptive pill less effective because they effectively give you the shits. Clean eating is a kind of catch-all term that really consists mainly of no processed foods, whole foods, plant-based foods, lots of fruit and veg, usually vegan, but I'm not going to talk about veganism and this episode isn't about veganism because it's just, it's complex and I don't want to dive into that just yet. I watched a fairly dreary video made by Eating Well magazine which explained the five things you should restrict and what you should replace them with if you want to eat clean. Saturated fats like cheese, whole milk and butter are out there to be replaced with unsaturated fats that are found in avocados, nuts and olive oil. The main big bad one is refined grains, including white pasta, rice and flour. They don't suggest cutting alcohol out completely, but they do suggest limiting it to one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men. Sure. Processed foods that have a big long list of ingredients are a no-no. In this part, they basically say, make it yourself at home if you insist on eating pizza. Homemade pizza is brilliant, but when white flour and cheese are ruled out, that doesn't make much of a pizza. Cutting down on sugar and eating more fruit and veg is obviously good for you. We've known this for a very long time. But the list of foods which are supposedly bad and wrong in the eyes of the clean eating people seems to change quite regularly. Dietary staples are now heavily criticised if you follow particular people on Instagram. What the fuck could possibly be wrong with something as basic as rice? A huge number of the world's population eats it every single day. Now, I'm not going to debate whether gluten intolerances are legit or not. If you don't want to eat gluten, you shouldn't have to eat gluten. I mean, you're missing out because pasta is perfect in every mood and for every scenario, but that's your life to lead. What I do think is up for debate, however, and what this episode is going to explore, is how mentally healthy all this Instagram-based dietary advice is and how easily people can get sucked into thinking it's the only way to eat. Can presenting your diet and lifestyle in a particular way, with a particular filter on it, encourage other people to make choices they usually wouldn't, or possibly even shouldn't? Well, I guess when I started getting into it, I was quite naive about it all. Like, when I started my blog, it was genuinely from a position of, I was really passionate about fitness and healthy eating. 
and I wanted to share that with other people. My first guest is actually a friend of mine. I used to live with her. She's called Hannah and she used to run a fitness blog which had a bit of healthy eating crossover in there. Recently though, she stopped and this is why. The more I got into it and the more I realised you could only really be successful if you adopted a certain kind of lifestyle. So that was being very strict with your food, being very like religious with your exercise schedule, like looking a certain way. Like I remember one of my more popular blog posts was I tried to eat like clean eating Alice for a week. I kind of wanted to do it in sort of like a journalistic sort of Louis Theroux way, like I was going to full on adopt this lifestyle for a week and see what happened. Loads of the food I made was disgusting, so I didn't eat it. <laughs> it was horrible. I was meant to do it for a week, this is how bad I <laughs> I did it for about five days, but I did cheat a little bit because I made that weird kidney bean cake. I remember this vividly because we were living together at the time. That kidney bean cake honestly looked like a bin lid. It was awful. The saddest looking cake you've ever seen. No joy in it, no sugar in it, just not a cake. Clean eating used to be a very easy to market phrase. Around 2016-2017 it started to wane in popularity. This is mainly because there was a series of documentaries and think pieces that focused on the link between restrictive diets and eating disorders and they picked a lot of holes, very big holes, in the validity of the nutritional advice. But according to Google Trends, people weren't really googling clean eating between 2004 and 2010. The numbers started going up from about 2012, reaching a height in 2014. Its search popularity has dipped slightly, but it's not changed an awful lot. January, for obvious reasons, is peak clean eating search time. The Google Trends graph has spiked at this time every single year since 2012. Australia, New Zealand, Canada and the US are the top four countries interested in eating clean. And we're number five in the UK, so we can't exactly wash our hands of it either. There's more criticism than ever, but people are still looking for it. They're still interested. It puts a lot of emphasis on restricting. My thought process wasn't very good when I was really into it. It ended up being more of a chore and I felt like there was a little box, like an Instagram box, where everyone looked a certain way and they were living this lifestyle and everyone was really happy to live that lifestyle. But actually I didn't fit into it and I didn't enjoy it. And I felt like I was really struggling to try and prove myself in that community. The issue is probably a lot worse than people might think. I know that quite a lot of people that are really into the clean eating movement or even in the fitness community in general have suffered from eating disorders themselves. A lot of them were anorexic or bulimic and they've been very, very unwell and they've found this to kind of restore their health, which is great. But then they go back into a very restrictive, not healthy way of living. When the phrase clean eating is on your cookbook and your blog and your Instagram or even in your Instagram name and suddenly it comes under fire, I understand why you'd want to distance yourself. One famous Instagram wellness guru said, quote, My problem with the word clean is that it's become too complicated, too loaded. Clean now implies dirty and that's negative. End quote. Well, that suggests to me it didn't used to be complicated or dirty in her opinion. It's been corrupted somehow. When I was talking to my friend Hannah, she said it sounds a bit like victim blaming. It was fine when they used it on their perfectly curated Instagram, 
but now the criticism has stuck, it's ruined it for them. I can see why they're pissed off by that, but I'm also not comfortable with the it's not my fault tone of voice when you've made a lot of money out of it for quite a long time. From a dietetic from a nutrition perspective and also from a sort of holistic perspective in terms of mental health, anything that encourages you to cut out specific food groups or cut out large portions of your diet is never going to do you any favours. To get the scientific perspective, I spoke to Sophie Medlin, a qualified dietitian registered with the British Dietetics Association. She's worked for the NHS, freelance, and she lectures at King's College London. Cutting out things like dairy is really negative for people's bone health. So you may have seen the um, wheat and grains, and particularly whole grains, are very useful for people's colonic bacteria. So the bacteria that are really important, they do all kinds of amazing jobs. And cutting out big food groups like that is, is always really negative, and we don't know the long-term consequences. Clean eating and all of those sort of terms have been invented by the online blogging community, by by people trying to sell you a book or sell you a product or sell you their lifestyle and sell you meal plans and what have you. So uh, it's not based on anything. Some of it's based on sound scientific principles like eating more fruit and vegetables, really good idea. Cutting back on processed meat, really good idea. Um, There's some sound scientific principles in there, but they're certainly not based on any scientific evidence or research. One of the things is they're selling a very glamorised view of things and a very polarised view of things. And people want to know exactly what the right answer to, is, is for their diet, what, the, what will help them to look like and feel like however they want to look and feel. People who don't have any um, responsibilities over the advice they give can say anything they like. So they can sell you all these products. They can say that this will definitely work for you. Whereas someone like me who uh, comes from a research background, who comes from a background of uh, having to have professional responsibility for everything I say, if I try and sell you something that I know doesn't work and that the research doesn't stand by, then I can get struck off as a dietitian. I can no longer practice as a dietitian or lecture or work in my field because I've sold you something that's that's not safe and not correct and not evidence-based. For that reason, a lot of the messages that the NHS give out, a lot of the messages that dietitians give out, to be this one-size-fits-all, I-know-the-miracle-cure thing, because we don't, and the research shows that we don't know the right answer for everybody under every circumstance. I've scoured the Instagram and blog pages of some of the most prominent wellness and healthy eating icons to see what they're actually posting about. The plus points are, some of the portions are pretty big, The food is undeniably quite colourful and varied. There's lots of enthusiasm. It's attractive, there's no doubt about it. But it's curated and it's crafted. It's not real. It's not what most people's dinner looks like. It's not what you would make when you've just come home from work and it's eight o'clock at night and you're so tired that your contact lenses feel dry. It's created by people who've turned wellness into their career. It's also quite contradictory. I can imagine someone who follows this closely feeling like they never quite managed to get it right. The rules are strict, and when the rules are strict, there's so much room to mess up. And what happens when you mess up? Do you just forget about it and try again the next day? Or do you let it eat away at you, pardon the pun, until you don't feel very good anymore? You feel like slightly less of a person. 
one of the things that's really common that I've really found more and more recently is people who go through these cycles of being really good and eating really clean or really healthily and then losing maybe up to like sort of two stone, a stone, and then they fall off the wagon because it's impossible for them to to maintain their sort of goals around what they think is right and what's wrong. And suddenly they just go back to the way they were eating before, put the weight back on again, beat themselves up, feel terrible, think they're an awful person, think they're a total failure, try to be clean again, go back into that cycle. And they're sort of losing or gaining throughout the year kind of a couple of stone and just generally feeling really crap about themselves when they're overweight. And then amazing like they're the best person in the world when they're the weight they want to be or the weight they feel they should be when in reality they're healthy weight or they're sort of set point weight is probably somewhere in between and they should they need to stop feeling like they need to be perfect all the time because it's just not realistic I just realized that it was having a really bad effect on my mental health I was subconsciously comparing myself to these people I feel like there's almost an elitism with it this is our amazing food that we've created in Shoreditch in London and we have these beautiful meals that we have on the go and yeah I just couldn't really live up to that. It was making me feel bad about myself so I just stopped following them one by one and that's really why I stopped my blog as well. I just found that it was just making me more miserable because <laughs> I used to get them um, like emails from PRs and stuff offering like weight loss opportunities and stuff and I'd read them and think I don't care about any of this. I don't hate myself. <laughs> so. <laughs> If we're talking about clean eating, that would suggest there's such a thing as dirty eating. When I picture dirty foods, for some reason, I picture pizza fries and I salivate immediately, which is yet more evidence that I could never eat clean on a regular basis. But I'm fortunate in that I don't have hang-ups about food, I don't have a history of eating disorders, I don't really care. Some people really do care. My name is Lori Lancashire and I live in Dallas, Texas. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I have a certified eating disorder specialist certification. I am really well versed in trauma. I go back into where did the first messaging happen with food. For the most part, I go back into the childhood and I start piecing that together. And that's a, a way to externalize the eating disorder itself so that you can then separate yourself as, okay, I'm not a bad person. I just have this voice in my head that has me relating to food in a disordered way. I then take a more loving approach and I talk about that little girl or that little boy that made up that he wasn't really worth it or that he wasn't lovable. And he started acting that out through food, either the restricting of food or the overeating of food. Once the light kind of turns on and they go, ah, I see it. And we start to see the pattern. Then we get into self-esteem work, boundary work, living in a modern way. And, and we really work to get them attuned to what their own body cues are. Because a lot of times those are really silenced when you're dealing with a full-blown eating disorder. In an incredible display of irony, my cat started noisily eating within minutes of me starting this interview. Thankfully, my mic didn't pick it up. The term orthorexia is relatively new. It dates back to Dr. Stephen Bratman in 1997. It's defined by eating disorder charity BEAT as an unhealthy obsession with eating pure food. You can probably see why most criticisms of clean eating have got the word orthorexia in there somewhere. When I asked Laurie about orthorexia, I naively expected her to say, yeah, I see people with that all the time in a beautiful Reese Witherspoon voice. Well, she didn't say that. My assumption was actually completely wrong. 
Orthorexia is not something that's yet in the DSM, which is the manual we use to diagnose. It isn't something that I see very often full-blown because the reason behind that would be most people with orthorexia don't think they have a problem. They think everybody else has a problem and everyone else should just eat as clean as they're eating. Really, the way that we look at it is more of an obsessive-compulsive disorder. I think that it would be a family member that would point it out to someone and say, you know, we can't ever go out to eat with you. You're always at home and you're always cooking and you're always chopping vegetables and it has to be the right oil or the, you know, the right um, nut milk or whatever that is. It's, uh, I think that restrictive quality of any 30 day challenge where you're restricting something and then it turns into a behavior, then it turns into a lifestyle. And the challenge of that, particularly with orthorexia, there is a better than thou quality that goes with orthorexia that feels really, really good. And if you, you've got that low self-esteem that's kind of underneath that driving that, it might be the first time in your life that you've felt some sense of power over your life. And so it can be really intoxicating. Yes, there are medically driven diets that people need to engage in, but that has to be done in such a carefully monitored way because diets are the springboard to an eating disorder. You will find that most people who have suffered from an eating disorder will point back to a 30-day diet or going into Weight Watchers or you know using some sort of system that says, okay, this is it. But it just sets people up to binge later because your body gets so out of whack with this feast-famine cycle. You start to get in that cycle of, if only I could just be successful tomorrow and well I'll just have a cheat day today and that just sets you up for failure and it sets you up to feel less than because you're not doing it the way it's supposed to be done and it's all these shoulds and then you're in a cycle of where your mind takes over and now you've got a mental issue. One of the things that concerns me is the way that social media now selects your news for you. If you start searching around for paleo, for example, or veganism, for example, or even clean eating, your newsfeed from Facebook, from social media will start throwing up more and more about clean eating, more and more positive stuff about it because it thinks that's what you want to read. It's very difficult for us to teach students on a four-year degree program how to pick up a, a piece of nutrition research and evaluate it for its strengths and weaknesses and to really critically appraise it. And so for us to expect that the general public can read a news article about food or whatever it might be and understand it and understand the strengths and weaknesses and understand that maybe it applies to them, maybe it doesn't apply to them, it is is very unrealistic. From your perspective, what is one of the most dangerous pieces of advice that some clean eaters dole out to people? My main concern is that people feel that they are under pressure to do something and to be a certain way all the time and to be 100% perfect all the time. And when they're not 100% perfect all the time, they feel like a failure. And that to me is the most dangerous thing, is this feeling that if I'm not achieving this, if I'm not doing this, I'm a failure. And that doesn't just impact, I don't know, the average person working in an average job, that impacts 
you know, new mums who are trying to breastfeed and look after a new baby. That impacts people who are working in jobs that are really important, you know, doctors, nurses who are busy and working hard and then they, they look in the mirror and they don't see what they're supposed to look like or then they can't follow a clean eating diet because they only have access to certain foods. People who are relying on a food bank, there's lots of, you know, the significant proportion of people who don't know where their next meal is going to come from they can't make those choices and I think it's that stigma around if you can't afford avocados for breakfast then you're not good enough and that's not okay for me like that really worries me the other issue for me is around plant-based milks and the the demonization of dairy particularly amongst this age group so if you think about the target age group of a lot of these blogs a lot of these Instagram posts and things like that you have until the age of 30 to make your bones as dense as possible and after that you're literally going downhill so your bones are then for the rest of your life used as like a store for minerals for your body if you don't make the most of that window in terms of your bone health making sure you get plenty of calcium every single day your bones will never reach their peak bone mass so your bones will never be as strong as they can be by the time you're 30. It's literally knocking on the door of so many girls who who have cut out dairy because it's trendy. That's been promoted by bloggers, that's been promoted by, you know, plant-based milk companies, that's been promoted by lots of people without conscience of that long-term impact of that. Clean eating has become an industry, almost entirely thanks to social media. Sophie's right when she says you just can't trust an Instagrammer in the same way you can trust a nutritionist with professional responsibility. But that doesn't matter on Instagram. Qualifications don't matter. It's an aesthetic platform where people can get a taste of something really quickly. The NHS's official advice can't compete with that speed and accessibility. I wanted to find out more about the social media influencers who make a living out of clean eating. Like I said before, a lot of people have dropped the word clean like a sack of shit. My googling showed me there are actually lots of fitness and wellness bloggers who still use it. None of them agreed to talk to me though. Some of the people I emailed, and there were a lot of people, seemed keen and then just wouldn't commit to a date and time, and it might be because they're busy, but... I have been accused of being too direct by employers, ex-boyfriends, and the odd friend, so that could be it. Anyway, it all worked out for the best, because I changed tact and started emailing the social media influencer agencies of the world. The agencies that use social media presences and figures to generate content and interest for brands. That's how I met a guy called Tass. Tass Labazinski is a co-founder and head of strategy at Socially Powerful, a global influencer marketing agency based in London. I went into the whole social media space way, way before money was any consideration. True success to me is the value that you bring to your audience. Um, so authenticity. We have 24 hours in a day. We, we, we have to sleep and rest. Like, what do we pay attention to truly? And we're being pulled in a lot of directions and that's only gonna increase. So the end consumer or the audience is going to make choices and they're going to choose those that bring the most value. So to me, the way I define success and who I will follow and pay attention to are going to be those that are going to be valuable to me. The control of distribution and if you had talent, you could sing, you could act. You were reliant on a select few to give you a shot because they had access. Now anyone 
with a with a phone can can reach everyone we're living through this real interesting kind of shift and it's not digital versus real if you want to connect you know it's about the the human the fact that more people are sharing and technology has made it possible for more heads to collide would indicate why you know there are more trends more people are aware of more things when technology didn't exist for people to sh share and, and, and connect in that way evidently those conversations just didn't people didn't know what clean eating was they just ate the way they were taught to by their parents that they had exposure to but suddenly someone that they look up to that connected with introduces them to hey if you want abs like mine try intermittent fasting and and i i actually tried it as part of what i was doing and i saw the results on the outside and um did feel energized and stuff fortunately overdid it with the coffee and <laughs> became too stressed Tass is currently fighting off leukemia, that's what all the background noise is, he was in hospital when we talked, and his social media presence has become radically honest and candid. It's a world away from how many clean eaters use Instagram, but it's still infectiously positive and motivating. Tass told me all about what his lifestyle used to look like. He got into bodybuilding stuff, and then he discovered intermittent fasting, too much coffee, too much pressure, and eventually crashed. I am a, especially the way I look now, I'm on, on quite high doses of, uh, of steroids and retaining a lot of water and they make you very hungry. Um, so I'm at about 108 kilo and the biggest I've ever been. My whole body composition has changed totally from what it was before. My body fat really kind of flew off and having that much coffee in your system affected my sleep and my recovery. And in my deluded mind, I thought, um, I'm just being more productive and I can do it. And then I looked in the mirror and I was like, I can see my abs, I look all right. And as long as I go to the gym and I push myself and I sweat, I'm healthy. I wouldn't be able to perform like this if I wasn't. Let's just keep going. The only thing I did notice was my constant stress level. I would forget what I would be talking about mid-sentence. I would constantly lose my train of thought and I could recover. I, I developed coping strategies. You know that feeling you get when you're about to walk into a presentation? and you've got the butterflies well that feeling no longer went away here's a big thing i learned i think it's almost healthier for you to have a glass of wine enjoy yourself have a relationship with your food have some chocolate yes you're putting stuff into your system that isn't that good but if your body has enough time and you get pleasure out of it and you're with people that you like and this, your stress level isn't that high your body can detox that better than if you if it becomes this obsession when you're obsessed with you know, achieving a goal and you're constantly stressed, you could be putting good stuff in your body, but that constant stress and lack of sleep, lack of time for your body to repair, that is worse, even if, if the ingredients going in are, are, are better. And I think if you do that over time, it'll run you down. To be loved, you don't need to be that kind of, hey, I'm an alpha and I've got abs and admire me and I'm gonna, you know, like I'm experiencing that. And cancer is like the ultimate slap in the face. Like it's the least sexy disease. I were, at the beginning I was like, oh my God, me? Cancer, like, what are people gonna think? Like, I'm a victim now. I'm no longer an alpha male. I'm in a position of need. I would prefer I'd had a base jumping accident and blown both my knees. Like, then people are gonna think I'm an action hero, but my body is too weak to, like, you know what I mean? All those preconceived, I've been totally. <laughs> Hello. Um, I'm just doing a little podcast. Okay. <laughs> um, but I'm feeling no pain. I feel so good. 
yeah, it's really working. So, yeah, <laughs> um, that was my consultant. You can follow Tass on Instagram at Head of Brand, and he's documenting his oh, words. He's documenting his experience on YouTube as well. So just search "socially powerful" to find his channel. I think the most important thing is understanding why you put things in your mouth. So one of the analogies that I use is that it's absolutely fine to eat cake with your friends when you're having a nice time. But if you're eating cake at home when you're sad and you're on your own and you're miserable, that's when it's an issue. It's, it's something about the psychology of eating rather than necessarily what you're eating so much. So, for example, most people understand about good dietary balance. Most people understand the foods in their diet that are causing them to gain weight. It's really about understanding why and when you eat those foods and when your triggers are and what your barriers are to things like doing a bit more exercise, eating a bit more fruit and veg, having nuts instead of you know crisps and biscuits and trying to put things in place that help you to negate those barriers. Where should people be getting their health, diet, etc. information from, in your opinion? So, I mean, in an ideal world, we teach people about nutrition in schools, but of course we don't. So that's an issue from, from the starting point. I think we need to get into particularly secondary schools when people are starting to pick up on some of these messages and put in decent programs around uh, normal nutrition, normal eating, healthy eating. Otherwise, it's about getting messages from reliable sources. So if you're looking to blogs and things like that, look for registered dietitians or look for registered nutritionists, people who've got uh, degrees in nutrition or nutrition and dietetics. The NHS provides some really good information and it's worth looking there. People massively discredit the government based on their dietary recommendations. But you need to remember that those recommendations are based on the best possible research that we have at the moment. And it's not going to stay the same forever. And there's always conflict around it because that's the nature of nutrition research. But those are the best and most reliable sources of information to go to. Out of the 36 million clean eating related posts on Instagram, let's remove the people who make a living out of it. What about the people who have genuinely made their lunch, taken a photo, put a filter on it and hashtagged it with clean eating? What does the phrase mean to them? And do they ever fall out of love with it? I messaged as many people as I could before Instagram suspected me of spam and asked them if they always enjoy clean eating or if it ever feels too difficult. How often do they look to Instagram for advice and do they trust the people they follow? Some really enjoy the food and have found the lifestyle easier and easier to stick to as they go along. Most would look to Instagram for recipe ideas and inspiration, but some have switched their interests up a bit and use it more for exercise guidance. Most said they only trust Instagram advice when it makes sense to them or it's logical. The clean eaters I spoke to use Instagram for inspiration rather than the gospel. It's possible that some don't fully understand the impact all this clean messaging is having on them. Like Laurie said, they might be at the stage where they think everyone else is doing it wrong. Despite what I've heard from the horse's mouth, I'm not convinced by the longevity of any of this. Clean eating feels a bit like something that's swept in, caused some chaos, changed some perspectives, rearranged your fridge, and will probably fade away again at some point. The people who were once big fans, like Tass and my friend Hannah and some of Laurie's clients, might stay loyal for a while, but it doesn't last. It's not sustainable. I'd love to know 
What encourages people to stick with it? But they ignored my emails, soz guys. I had tried a 30-day raw diet when my children were little, and they're now 17 and about to be 15, and they were babies. And so I was spending a lot of time at home alone and not working, and uh, my husband was out working and in the grind. And so I spent a lot of time alone. And looking back on that, it was a way to, for those 30 days, have some sense of purpose outside of just being a mom. And when I look back at that, I think, wow, what was driving that for me was, you know, I'm going to cleanse and I'm going to get healthy. And these 30 day challenges, you kind of got to ask, well, why would I think that my colon needs to be cleaned or my liver's not doing a good job? And I think this is why people need help with this, right? Because you can't get far enough away from it to be able to see it for yourself. When I look back on those 30-day challenges, the cleanse I was really looking for was I didn't have a sense of purpose beyond being a mother. I had relationship issues in my marriage, and I wasn't addressing those. I wasn't looking at those. I, was, I for me, was very avoidant in dealing with conflict. And thankfully, I've gotten a lot of work on that. Being a therapist, you have to learn how to not be an avoidant. Looking back at that, if I could have seen that from that perspective, I would have had to have a conversation I wasn't ready to have. And that's really scary. And that's why a lot of people don't get help because, you know, the undercurrent that's happening in their life, they don't really want to look at. My ultimate goal is to get people really centered and learn how to anchor into their own guidance system. There's a saying um, that, you know, a true healer really leads the person to the healer inside themselves. And then you're off to the races. You can do it on your own. You know, the, the idea is not to be in therapy for the rest of your life. The idea is to learn how to navigate life in a different way where you don't have to use food or drugs or alcohol or sex or gambling or shopping or, you know, whatever that is. If you look to someone else and you look outside of yourself to be led by someone else, it's not going to be right for you because there isn't one way of being that fits all. Something actually happened in my own life while I was making this episode, which made me think about clean eating slightly differently. Um, I've had a really stressful couple of months for various reasons, which is partly why this episode is about three weeks late. Uh, And I started feeling quite down and alone, um, which isn't very healthy when you're stuck in a flat on your own. So I went home to stay with my mum for a bit to work in peace and take some pressure off myself. Uh, It's not been a great period in terms of mental health, but I'm doing fine now. Uh, And this will sound a bit mad to people who take care of themselves automatically, but I'm not great at it. At my worst, I was eating one meal a day because my appetite had shrunk so much I just couldn't really stomach anything. So my mum's kitchen could be described as fairly clean. There's the odd ready meal, but on the whole, it's very green and healthy, far healthier than mine ever is. I started snacking on fruit and eating full meals and stopped drinking in the week. I'm going for walks. I briefly thought about going running, but I'll probably regret that after seven seconds. And also, if I ever start talking about half marathons, I expect all my friends to just cut me off. 
I didn't feel remotely smug or immoral. I felt like I was looking after myself properly for the first time in ages. Food wasn't about just eating because I need to get on with something or responding to emotions, which admittedly it often is. It was just good for me. So I started thinking about the clean eaters and took away the word clean for a moment. I thought about the people I'd messaged on Instagram with their various very human reasons for trying to eat less food wrapped in plastic. They're just trying to look after themselves really, most of them anyway. Some will cross over into controlling damaging behaviour and a diet that tells them what to do will never be suitable. But others need that. Others need to know where they stand with something that fuels them, keeps them going. Food is universal, we all need it. And naturally we all have our own opinions on it. The professional clean eaters have been living by a this worked for me, it might work for you model. That might seem like it gives people autonomy, but sometimes it's anything but. When your diet is wrapped up in cookbook deals and hundreds of thousands of people are watching how you prepare sweet potatoes, you can't claim you're not giving advice. And you really need to be able to stand by that advice. So it's time for the big old question. Is it a cult? Well, usually members of a cult don't realise they're in a cult. They don't think there's anything wrong, and if some doubt creeps in, they're often conditioned to challenge it, or they push it right down and ignore it. For me, clean eating has shades of cult in it for exactly this reason. I wouldn't go so far as to use the B word, that's brainwashing by the way. Problem is, when you focus on one specific part of your life this much, and you allow it to quite deeply affect how you view yourself as good or bad, that's not really sustainable or conducive to being content. Cult leaders like to keep their followers on their toes, enraptured and eager to impress. I don't think clean eating and wellness icons are doing this callously, but they've got our ear and they've got our attention, but they definitely, in no way, shape or form, have all the answers. They have kale, and they can keep that. That's a Cult is written and produced by me, Helen McCarthy. You can follow me on Twitter at Helen L. McCarthy and you can follow this podcast at That's a Cult. You can find all the sources I've used for each episode at thatsacult.com so you can do your own reading and research. Thanks to my interviewees, Hannah Gilroy, Sophie Medlin, Laurie Lancashire, love that name, and Tass Labazinski. All their details are in the episode description. The music in this episode was produced by Antilly Wardy. He's made over a thousand pieces of his music free for people to use, royalty-free, as long as you credit him. His details are in the description too. If you use his music for your own projects, make sure you credit him. And ideally, if you can, give to his PayPal. If you want me to investigate a specific community or potential cult, email your suggestions to thatsacult at gmail.com. I've been getting lots of tips, so thank you for those, and please keep them coming because they go in a big long list. Your suggestions don't have to be entirely internet-based, just niche and compelling and enjoyably weird. Thanks for listening.